This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we are not just simply studying a book of human ideas, human opinions, human thoughts, but that this is a revelation, a supernatural revelation given by you through the prophets and the apostles that as God the Holy Spirit oversaw the process of inspiration, that they were moved along and wrote not their own ideas, their own interpretations, their own uh, opinions, but they wrote the very words that you would have them to write and expressed these critical doctrines for us, that we might learn to know you, that we might learn to live for you, and that we might understand all that you have given us. And, Father, as we study today, we pray that we might be challenged even more to live in light of our destiny, to live in light of who we are in Jesus Christ, and to recognize that he has done everything for us and provided everything for us. And it is simply for us to learn what these assets are that we have been given, that we may exploit them for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 in verses 21 to 23, and the focal point of verse 23 is hope. To understand what Paul is getting at here, we must understand this word hope. This is a word that is often misunderstood, often misapplied in day-to-day language. It's often uh, uh, misapplied in various uh, slogans and advertising statements, and yet in the Word of God, it is a word that has a tremendous significance for us. I want to go back to where we began last time to pick up the context in Colossians 1.21 and just read through these three verses. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and without reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." 
Now, as we look at this passage and you read verse 23, especially if you weren't here last time or you're just reading along in Scripture, it looks at the surface as if this is not talking about a grace salvation but a works salvation. It looks as if the apostle is saying that, yes, you can be saved if you continue in the faith, if you're grounded and steadfast, and if you don't move away from the hope of the gospel. But that isn't really what he is saying. To understand it, we have to understand some things that are going on in the Greek text, but also how certain words are used uh, throughout Scripture, and especially within the context that we have here in this epistle uh, to the Colossians. And just to uh, uh, give you a little fuller understanding of this trend of the, these three verses, I put an expanded translation together, and get to give you a little bit of an understanding of what is going on here, Paul is saying to the Colossians as a group because it's a plural second person plural pronoun that we have running through this section. So I always translate y- that y'all. Y'all though, at one time. He's talking about, and there you have to raise the question, is he talking about before they believed or is he talking about before Jesus died on the cross? That's an important distinction to make. He says, y'all, though, at one time you were in a state of alienation and hostile in your thinking, producing evil works. Yet now he has reconciled in or it could be by the body of his flesh, emphasizing his material or physical death, by the body of his flesh through death to present you as set apart to God, blameless and above reproach. And those three terms are not talking about a position. They're talking about our experiential sanctification, as I pointed out last time, because the terms present, the terms before him, are also terms that are consistently used in relation to our being presented before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, the purpose of which is to evaluate our Christian growth for the purpose of rewards. Not This is not a reference to whether or not we have eternal life or will enter into heaven, but is rather focused on our uh, qualifications for responsibilities and service in heaven or in the uh, millennial kingdom. And so the next verse says, uh, if indeed you abide, a word that is always used in reference to fellowship. If you abide or continue to grow in the faith, not faith for justification, but faith for spiritual growth. If indeed you abide or continue to grow in the faith because you have already, past tense, completed action, because you've already been grounded and steadfast and are not distracted from the confident expectation that is a focus on our destiny derived from the gospel which you heard, which was proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, as we look at the beginning of this passage and these verses and the focus is on reconciliation, We need to remember that reconciliation had two aspects. There was the objective aspect that took place at the cross when Jesus died. There was something that happened there 
that change the orientation of the creature, the fallen creature, mankind, to a righteous and just God. Part of what happened as we went through the uh, barrier a few weeks ago, part of what happened was directed toward God and his righteousness and justice. His righteous standard had to be satisfied so that his justice would be free to bless. And that is referred to by the word in the New Testament, propitiation or satisfaction. The justice of God had to be, or the righteousness of God had to be satisfied so that his justice would be free to bless. But there is another word that is used in the New Testament, a word that's not used in the Old Testament. I think that's because it could not be used until an, the, the sins had actually been paid for, and that's the word reconciliation. Reconciliation applied to man. It is man who is reconciled to God. It is man who originally moved. It is the human race that is uh, sinful, and it is that sinful state referred to as hostility, alienation, or enmity in the Scripture. It is that status, and I think it must be understood as a legal status because we're under condemnation. It is that legal status that gets changed in some way, not just when we believe, but when Jesus died on the cross. Now, its application to an individual in terms of their own orientation to God is the what I refer to as the subjective side, the personal side of reconciliation. Paul said that God reconciled the world to himself, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world, and that word the world uh, envisions all of inhabited humanity, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Now, the them refers to the world. So it is the sin is actually paid for by Christ on the cross, and that refers to those universal aspects of Christ's atonement, that uh, the whole world is propitiated, God is propitiated not only for us, but the whole world, First John uh, 2, 2, reconciliation for the whole world, redemption for all, um, all mankind. And what we see in this verse is that God performs the action and the world receives the action, and so the issue is the fact that sin is not imputed means that sins are actually paid for. People are not sent to the lake of fire because of sin. That's paid for at the cross. There's no double indemnity in the legal plan of God. Uh, what you have, is, or double jeopardy, rather, uh, what you have, rather, is that people are sent to the lake of fire because they're still spiritually dead and they have refused to accept uh, Christ's righteousness, so they're still unrighteous, and because they don't have the kind of righteousness that can get them into heaven, and because they are still spiritually dead, then they are under condemnation, and the eternal penalty is uh, the lake of fire. The Scripture teaches that it is in this state of hostility or enmity that is the basis that that Christ died for us. Uh, Romans five six and five eight. 
uh, Christ died for us and while we were still sinners or while we were at enmity with him. Ephesians 2.15 gives us a another look at this. Uh, in that passage, we read that he abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, uh, thus making peace. Now, when did this take place? This took place at the time of his death on the cross, Ephesians 2.15, that uh, he abolished it in his flesh when he was alive physically uh, upon the earth. We also know from uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 12, that there's was a time when, as Paul is speaking to the Gentile Ephesians, he says, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. So there's two aspects to the uh, state of alienation or enmity there in Ephesians 2. One is in, in the relationship between Jew and Gentile, and the other is in the relationship between all mankind, Jew or Gentile, and and God the Father. And so that's the reference to strangers to the covenants of promise has reference to that as well, saying that they had no hope and that they were without God in the world. So reconciliation, therefore, is something that happens. The objective aspect took place in AD 33 when Christ died for our sins. There's a change, legal change in that relationship between the human race and God. So to Colossians 1.22 reinforces this, that he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. That can't be when we believe. It has to be when he died. There was something there that happened uh, at that particular uh, moment in history. So that sin, as I pointed out, sin is no longer the barrier between man and God. The sin penalty is paid for, and man has been reconciled to God by virtue of that payment. That doesn't mean all are saved. It just means that status is changed and makes it possible for those who are under condemnation to believe the message, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 5, the message of reconciliation, which is be reconciled to God. So you have those two aspects. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and the message is be reconciled to God. So there's the two different uh, aspects there. Then last time I pointed out that we have a tendency to look at phrases like holy, blameless, above reproach, and to think of this in terms of position, our position in Christ, that at the instant of faith in Christ, we're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, and so we are positionally set apart to God by virtue of what is referred to as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. But this passage can't be talking about positional reality, but it must be speaking of experiential reality because uh, the focal point is in challenging the Colossian believers to continue in their spiritual life, to not be distracted. And this is a major problem that uh, is being faced there. So you have these three words that are used together, the word for holy, the word for blameless, uh, uh, amomas, and the word for above reproach. 
anakletos. These are all used both at some passages of positional, uh, our positional relationship with God and others in terms of our experiential growth. So that the purpose, one purpose of the cross is to provide a basis whereby we can grow to spiritual maturity. Now, for some reason, I seem to have duplicated the slide, so we'll just skip. Oh, paristemi. The purpose is that we may be presented. Paristemi emphasizes uh, that presentation of the believer at the judgment seat of Christ, as seen in Romans 14, verse 10, when uh, Paul says, Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand. And the word there is the same uh, word that we have in Colossians. We shall all be presented before the judgment uh, seat of Christ. This is the uh, verb paristemi, which means to be presented as we are presented and evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. So the focal point is on not just continuing or abiding in the faith, that is spiritual growth, but not being distracted, not being moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, last time I pointed out as we got into this particular passage that it's very clear if you read through the four chapters of Colossians that there are that is clear in Paul's mind that those to whom he is writing have been justified, that they're all saved. You just cannot avoid this. He doesn't think at all in terms when he says, if indeed, he's not thinking, well, maybe you're not saved. He's made it very clear that they are. He calls them saints and faithful brethren in 1-2. They had a reputation for faith and love in uh, verse 4. Uh, their faith was bearing fruit in verse 6. They had heard and understood the gospel of grace in verse 6. Uh, Verse 14, they were redeemed and forgiven. They're reconciled in verses 21 to 22. And then uh, it becomes very clear that they are um, have been saved when we look forward to Colossians 2, 5, and 6. For Paul says, Though I am absent in the flesh, let I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the what? Steadfastness of your faith in Christ. It's not the same word that we have in Colossians 1, uh, 23, but it is a synonym. So he's already, t- in just a few verses, he praises them because they are steadfast. But he's, but verse 23 then is not trying to get them saved, but encouraging them not to be distracted in their pursuit of spiritual maturity because there's an end game. There is a future reality that we all have, and it's easy to let the details of this life distract us from the objective, which is our preparation for ministry in the future millennial kingdom. So he says, if indeed, assuming that they will, continue or abide in the faith, that is a phrase that represents remaining in fellowship, abiding in Christ, and continuing and moving forward in their uh, spiritual growth. And then, as I pointed out last time, the uh, verbs that are used here for grounded, the meliao is a perfect passive 
uh, participle indicating completed action. They continue in something that's all where the foundation has already been laid. It is completed, so he's not trying to get them saved. They've already laid that foundation. Now they need to be steadfast and uh, continue to go forward in the hope of the gospel and not to be moved away from or distracted from that hope and that purpose. Now, this brings us to a very important doctrine in the Scriptures, and that is the doctrine of hope. What does the Scripture teach about Christian hope? Well, before we get into that specifically in terms of point one, we have to remember what the context is here, that you have this group of believers in this church at Colossae who come under the same kind of pressure that every one of us comes under every single day, that every Christian has faced down through the centuries, and that is the pressure to think like the world around them thinks, to think in terms of the norms and standards and the uh, lifestyle of the culture around them. And yet God has called us to be distinct and unique and not to be like the world around us. Uh, this is the same kind of thing that God did in the Old Testament when he called out Abraham. And he had a specific plan for Abraham and his descendants. And they were to live in a way that was set apart and distinct from all of the nations around them. And so God gave them the Torah, the law, so that on the basis of their observance of the law, God would bless them richly, and this would be a testimony or witness to the entire world, so that in Deuteronomy 4 we're told then all the nations will look and say, has there ever been a nation? Like, like the Jewish nation, has there ever been a nation like Israel that has been blessed by God, that has such wisdom, that has all of this teaching? Has there ever been a people like this? And the answer would be no, because they were applying the wisdom of the Torah. And so the church-age believer is called out the same way. We are to live a life that is set apart or distinct. That's the idea in the word, um, in the word holiness. And today we face the same kinds of problems they faced at Colossae. We have a world around us that is shaped by uh, the materialist, materialist philosophy. We, it's uh, facing the nihilist philosophy uh, that has been uh, uh, prevalent throughout the last 150 years, the emphasis on uh, Darwinism, evolution, uh, the emphasis on basic problems uh, of man are defined by psychoanalysis and not by the Word of God. All of these kinds of things have shaped the thinking of Western culture, and it bears different fruit in different generations. The generation that is coming up today, that is, and I would extend this up to 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds, that generation thinks very differently than even their uh, parents or grandparents who were influenced by much more of a secular uh, type of uh, thinking than had preceded them. But this current generation, because the secular trend has so removed God from the marketplace of ideas where there's not even an appearance uh, or, uh, or mention of God in the classroom, and every attempt is being made to remove God from the marketplace of ideas, 
that this leaves the generation without any understanding of the uh, just the cultural significance of the Bible. And I, I, I wonder how impoverished these young people are just culturally. How can you read the great literature? Of course, I understand they're not reading the great literature. But how can you read the great literature of Western civilization without knowing anything about the Bible? Because every writer from uh, Shakespeare up through the 19th century uses biblical terms, biblical allusions. And there are all kinds of uh, biblical uh, phrases that have entered into the normal use of English and people use phrases, and they don't even know that, that it probably was influenced from the Bible. I'll give you an example of that uh, in just a minute. So we have uh, this impoverished generation influenced by, uh, you know, nihilism and materialism and Darwinism. Uh, we have a generation that has been influenced by the, um, by the economic philosophies to create dependency, we, the, the whole idea of social uh, justice comes out of a Marxist socialist background, the idea that puts uh, more responsibility on government than on the individual to handle the problems in their life. And the more you give responsibility to the government to handle the problems and circumstances of life, the less freedom we have. Freedom is always correlative to responsibility. When people are irresponsible, then they will, uh, they are, they have put their freedoms in jeopardy. When people give the responsibility for their happiness, for their stability, for their future into the hands of a corporation, a union, a government, then to the degree that they abdicate responsibility for areas of their life, to that same degree they will uh, no longer experience genuine freedom uh, in that area. And so it creates a, a an entitlement Mentality, and we have a generation that has come along that doesn't understand some of these concepts and the importance of being independent rather than dependent upon government. And this was, it goes back to just understanding basic American history that the uh, war for independence and the declaration of independence uh, spoke to the issue of freedom from government and not just uh, the freedom to kind of live life the way I want to and do what what I wish to do. And so there's, uh, as a result of this toxic blend of, uh, of ideas that came out of the late 19th century, Western civilization now teeters on collapse. We see worldwide economic problems. I mean, you can't... Uh, avoid un coming to understand these things. The United States is not the only nation that is facing a debt crisis. You have numerous nations in Europe that are facing a debt crisis. And what got them into that debt crisis? What got them into the debt crisis was the idea that nations could generate their own, their own money systems and that they could determine value and that they, they ultimately controlled, uh, the value of money and they could just, uh, underwrite whatever it was that they wanted to underwrite. And that led to spending money that they did not have. And so they're, uh, they, they looked at money as something relative just as they looked at, at morals and, uh, 
and ethics as something that was relative and that value had no objective standard, only a subjective standard. And the result is that we see nation after nation after nation threatened with collapse. And then when they try to solve the problem by tightening the purse strings, which is what you or I would do in a, in a personal situation, if you're, uh, suddenly realize that, uh, uh, you've had a cut in salary or you no longer have the income you had, then what you have to do is stop spending money. You don't go out and, uh, you can try to get a second job, but at some point you can only get so many second, third, or fourth jobs. Uh, you have a limited income, and you have to live within that means, and so you have to quit spending money. But we can't seem to understand that the issue, the problem that we have is not a revenue issue. It is a spending issue, and it is commitments to entitlement programs that um, – that have destroyed the monetary system and destroyed the economies of these countries. And then the result is that when you start tightening your purse strings, what do you see? You see riots develop. Now, the riots in England we've seen the last two or three days are not necessarily motivated by this kind of economic problem, but we have seen it in Greece, we've seen it in Spain and other places, and we'll likely see it here uh, in the United States, as there is a belt tightening going on, then those who are dependent upon the government for everything um, will will fight against they 'll revolt against it, and so all of this influences the thinking of people and so scripture says that we 're not to think like the world thinks we 're not to be conformed to the spirit of the age, the world, but to tr- be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And part of that is understanding our, our, fu- our future, understanding the hope that we have. And this is foundational to spiritual growth. As we look at uh, Colossians, we see that hope is foundational to Paul's message to the Colossians back in his introduction. In Colossians 1, 4, and 5, he said, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, that's their point of justification, salvation, and of your love for all the saints, that reflects their spiritual maturation, their spiritual growth, because... Now, that phrase, because, relates to the clause before it, their love for all the saints. What motivated their love for the saints? The hope laid up for them in heaven. So what does this mean that we have hope? Well, let's begin with a definition. One of the uh, many negative consequences in our media-driven world is that there's an emphasis on sound bites and slogans and taglines, and as a result of that, words and their meanings often uh, suffer. They get sacrificed due to the intellectual laziness of uh, of the uh, uh, advertisers and the uh, uh, PR people who are promoting these things. I first was alerted to this. My dad had me read a book about the time I graduated from college that had just come out in 1974 by uh, Edwin Newman, and he was a uh, uh, news correspondent, but he also had a little hobby, which was to try to preserve the integrity of the English language. Uh, he wrote a book in 1974 called Strictly Speaking, Will America Be the Death of English? It was quite humorous, but also alerted me to uh, how the 
news media, which he blamed for almost all of the ills of the English language, how the news media was destroying the English language. And once you destroy language, you destroy people's ability to think and to think critically. And so all of this is just part of the systematic corruption that we see in in our culture. Uh, When he died, the New York Times obituary described him as the genteely rumpled, genially grumpy NBC newsman who was famous for his defense of the honor of the English language. One of the things that I still remember about that book is that he pointed out how the word hope, especially in the word in the forms of hopeful and hopefully, are misused and abused in, uh, especially by the media, but in everyday uh, language. And we see that in especially one current political slogan, uh, hope we can believe in, uh, hope and change. Now, if we parse that, which I'll do in a minute, uh, we realize that it really doesn't mean anything, which is what happens to a lot of these types of things is they sort of have a feel-good element to them, but when you stop and think about what words mean, that sort of evaporates. Uh, it would probably surprise uh, our president to realize that the concept of believing in hope is actually based on a mistranslation of the Greek text of Romans 4.18. Probably never entered into anybody's mind. See, the you can't understand a lot of things that go on in English if you don't understand the Bible because so much that we have comes out of especially uh, the King James Version. So what does hope mean? Well, the English, if you look the word up in any English dictionary, it has the idea of what I usually refer to as just a wishful optimism. Sometimes you're, you have a stronger sense of, uh, that this will come about. Other times you're not sure. We could say, well, I hope it will rain today. Uh, they had rain in Dallas yesterday, but, uh, I hope it rains here. That's just wishful optimism. Don't, don't count on it. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes we express it as we see those, the clouds come and say, oh, I'm, I, I really hope it rains. And, and we have a greater sense of, of, of confidence there. So there's a range of meaning. Has the, this idea of expressing a desire with the expectation of obtaining something or to expect something with confidence. The Webster's Dictionary also lists an archaic meaning. Now, this is important, an archaic meaning. Remember, the King James Version of the Bible is often influenced by older meanings of words, uh, an archaic meaning of trust and reliance. Uh, thus, uh, if we take a look at these meanings and we look at the English phrase, this uh, hope we can believe in sounds meaningful, but actually it may, if it says a belief we can believe in, then we have a tautology or redundancy that means nothing, or an expectation we can believe in, which doesn't seem to really mean anything uh, either. In contrast to the ambiguous way in which English uses the word hope, the Greek text uses hope with a precise meaning, and that is the idea of a confident expectation, an assurance of a future reality. Hope in the Bible is never this idea of wishful optimism, but is always the expression of a certainty, a future certainty, a future reality, a confident expectation or assurance 
that something will take place. At its broadest sense, when you read the word hope, it is a reminder that we can be certain and confident and we can be assured of our salvation and our eternal destiny. In a narrower sense, the word hope focuses on our the, the, the quality of our future eternal life, not just the certainty of our future eternal life, but the quality of it uh, following the judgment seat of Christ as we are serving the Lord in the millennial kingdom. So the first point was had to do with definition. Second point is hope is very closely related to faith in the scriptures. And in some passages, there's almost an overlap of meaning. It is very, very close together. For example, when the Apostle Paul was uh, giving his uh, testimony, explaining what had happened when he was arrested in Jerusalem to the uh, governor at the time, Felix, he says, I have hope in God. So it, it, there it's very close to saying, I, I believe in God. The hope is the result of belief, but he's, it's very close in meaning. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So we see that hope is close to the idea of faith, and it also focuses on something in the future. A couple of chapters later, as Paul is uh, addressing uh, uh, Herod and Festus, he says, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. See, hope is often related to promise. When we claim a promise, there is a hope or confidence that God will fulfill that which he has promised to us. That's looking forward to something. So Paul said, I now, now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Uh, this promise, to this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. And that hope, that promise was the promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the land of Israel would be theirs and that eventually God would provide a Messiah, a messianic ruler who would establish their kingdom. And so Paul says, for this hope's sake, because he has a focus on the future fulfillment of God's promise that he was on trial. Another passage uh, that is uh, focuses attention on the future is uh, in Titus chapter one verse two, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So there again, we see this this idea of something in the future. It's not wishy washy or just uh, uh, wishful. It is certain in the confident expectation of eternal life, which God promised before uh, before time began. And then, and I think I must have, did I not get this in here? I must not. One passage that is he, that we have uh, something similar to the slogan we've heard is Romans 4.18. Romans 4.18, in reference to Abraham's confidence in God, Paul writes, who, conf- that is Abraham, and then the New King James translate, most translations butcher this, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. That doesn't even make good sense in English, contrary to hope, in hope believed. But there you get this idea that you believe in hope. That's not what the Greek says at all. Uh, the prepositions just aren't translated that way. 
literally, you have the preposition. Uh, the first preposition is para, which, when used with the accusative case, means from something, and usually as a temporal sense, not a source sense, but from something that has gone on before. Uh, toward something, and so it should be translated from hope, that is, from previous expectations and the realization of the promise of God. Uh, on the basis of that hope, Abraham believed. There, when the, the point is that is being made is that God had demonstrated faithfulness to his promises to Abraham in the past, and on the basis of that, the, that hope and hope realized, the hope in those promises and the hope realized, Abraham continued to have hope and confident expectation that God will fulfill the promise that he had made to him. You don't have hope in faith or you have hope on the basis of faith or that is the faith that precedes the hope. Now, in Scripture, there is, in the New Testament, one hope. There's one hope and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So this is a summary of various different expressions in Scripture that talk about our hope. And the hope of our calling is focuses on our destiny. We were called for a purpose. The calling has to do with God's saving us, and that saving isn't just so we can end up going to heaven rather than the lake of fire, but that we would have a destiny of service to God in the future kingdom and on into the eternal state. And so that uh, one hope of our calling summarizes all that God has for us in the future. This again takes us back to uh, the opening of Colossians 1, 4, and 5, that it is because of that hope, because we understand where we're headed, that it impacts the, li- the, the, the decisions we make and the lives we have now. We're living today in light of the future and in light of eternity. And the fact that this is the problem that the Colossian believers are facing, the distraction that Paul is warning them about, is seen in the next chapter where Paul says, again, let no one cheat you of your reward uh, by taking delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things uh, which he has not seen. In other words, the focal point that he that Paul has here is that if the believer gets distracted from his pursuit of spiritual maturity, which will have fruit for eternity, then that you will be cheated of your reward at the judgment seat of Christ. So the focal point here in these verses is not getting saved or even an assurance of salvation. The focal point in these verses is to uh, encourage the Colossian believers in us to move forward, to understand the hope that comes from the gospel. It's a, uh, the, the gospel gives us an understanding of our future destiny. That's why it is called the gospel, which means good news. And we are not to be moved away or distracted from that confident expectation the gospel gives us that we will have a future resurrection, an eternal life, and that we will rule and reign uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes in his kingdom. We are not to be distracted from that hope which we have heard, and that then Paul says this is what uh, was preached, what he preached to every 
was preached to every creature under heaven, and then Paul says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then with that, he transitions into the next section where he begins to focus a little bit more on the impact of God's grace on his own life. We'll come back to that next Sunday morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the hope that we have, for the confident expectation that we have, that uh, because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins and because we believe in him, there is a future destiny that we have. We know this with certainty. Uh, There is no doubt. Because Jesus paid the price in full, uh, we do not have to look back. We do not have to uh, be dominated by guilt and worry as to whether or not uh, your justice has been satisfied. But we know that Christ satisfied that justice, the penalty was paid, and that we can have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would... Uh, take this time to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, to pay the penalty for your sins, that by simply believing in him, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things that we've studied today, that God the Holy Spirit would use this to challenge us, to motivate us, to push us down the road to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.